Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. Today I'm joined by one of the country's most prolific and eloquent lighting designers, Nick Schlieper. It's wonderful to have this opportunity in this episode to dissect the process of the lighting designer with an artist such as Nick. Reflecting on the Stages archive, he is only the second lighting designer to be featured. I'm slightly ashamed to say, so I'm glad that we can rectify that today. Nick's work, like all artists in the theatre industry, has been impacted over the past two years, so it's thrilling to see him commence 2022 with lighting designs for a succession of shows. The year commences for Nick with lighting designs for productions of Ujang, Not the Past, for Bengara Dance, North by Northwest, playing the Sydney Lyric Theatre, and The Phantom of the Opera for Opera Australia on Sydney Harbour. With such a full schedule, it was a treat for stages to sit down and examine the art of lighting design with Nick Schlieper. Nick Schlieper, hello. Thank you for joining Stages. Hello, Peter. Pleasure. Uh, You are about to return to Sydney Stages uh, with North by Northwest. We're finally getting to see the show in Sydney and um, uh, at long would, last. At long last. What's taken it so long? Old theatre availability, mostly. That is a consideration, isn't it, for for all shows? You've you've got to have a space to uh, to present your work in. That's right, and you know it's um it's a tired cliche to talk about the lack of theatres in Sydney, um, but of course it's not just the overall quantity of theatres that's available; it's the nature of those theatres. You know, some of them are more suitable for some things and not suitable for others, etc. Well, you'd be um, fam- familiar with a lot of theatres having designed uh, for all the major performing arts companies throughout Australia and also uh, Europe and the USA and, and, and the UK. I've trolled my way through a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> How, here's a, a curly one to start off with. How important is the role of theatre in this country, do you think, compared to your experiences overseas? Or, or more so, how is it perceived uh, not nearly important enough for my liking. Yeah. Um, to take an extreme, and I, I'm fully aware that this is an extreme counterexample, um, Germany, which is the country I've most worked in outside Australia. It's part of normal way of life. You see regularly see large groups of um, school classes attending theatre, and you can tell by the way that they behave. It's... It's normal. It's just one of the things that is part of their part of their curriculum. Um, 
and of course that's where the problem starts. The arts are so undertaught in Australian schools that if you don't start at the beginning, then obviously you, you know you wear the effect of that at the other end. And I love all those well-meaning Australian Council surveys that tell you that 90-something percent of the population, in I think the terminology is engage in an arts activity. And then you go down and read the fine print and realise that that includes listening to the radio, listening to music on the radio, and in those days hiring a DVD. So it could be said that that's setting the bar rather low. When it comes to the performing arts, I don't think anyone can really say a number, name a number with any great certainty, but I suspect it's more like 10% of the whole population, which I find deeply, deeply depressing. Yeah, very much. Look, it's it's the the leadership as well, isn't it? I mean, as we've experienced so much with the current pandemic, the arts industry has really copped a battering, but um, it seems that they are also ignored through that battering. Copped a battering were um, the government was very, very slow and late to help. Given that the sort of, um, I guess, in economic speak, the business model of subsidised companies in this country has been broken for over a decade. It just doesn't work. They're so dependent on the vagaries of private philanthropy that you only need something like this to show up a problem that has long existed. There's nothing new about it. Uh, that slowness of response was responsible to sending several companies to the wall and others had to be bailed out by their respective state governments to the tune of large sums of money. But they, they, they still haven't got back to where they were. Uh, those, those millions that you now occasionally read about are literally Band-Aid disaster relief. They're not, they're not actually improving the bottom line of it. And carriage works would be a case in point there that was literally thrown to the winds and um, had it not been rescued by a group of philanthropists would probably no longer exist this very day. But, you know, the problem there is that those, those philanthropists, because it's their own money, quite rightly want to have a say over what is programmed in that venue. Mm-hmm. And there goes the independence of that particular art form. And, you know, it's as soon as you're putting your hand in your own pocket, it's your damn good right. Um, and then I guess the final indignity is the way that the RISE Fund is being spent at the moment. It almost seems like the guideline there for the government is uh, don't give any money to anything that looks like subsidised theatre or, to put it more bluntly, don't give, anything, don't give money to anything that looks like capital A art. Give it to touring rock bands, give it to Legoland sculptures in parks, you know, to the tune of a couple of million at a time. Substantial sums of money. But of course, the, the thing that everyone in the industry is concerned about is that it is kind of the end of the principle of arms length funding, and that we're going back to George Brandis's days on speed now, where all funding is at the caveat of the minister. Would be nice to have an arts minister, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a lovely thing? <laughs> a wonderful I'd new role. For a seat, I'd settle for a seat at the cabinet table just for a start, yeah. um, rather than those three letters, four letters, arts, being tacked onto the end of public park, parks, garbage bins, 
small back streets that nobody cares about and telephone signal black spots. You know. So as a theatre maker in a time of COVID, what, what are the challenges that you face? I, I guess the biggest one is unpredictability. Yes. Um, I have been saying to friends recently that, you know, I've been incredibly lucky and blessed nearly all of my working life and that I've always been very, very busy. I've always been working on lots of productions at once. But the kind of diary juggle at the beginning of every year is something that I've just become completely used to. And yet at the end of last year, I went from doing absolutely zero shows to suddenly working on six shows, one of which is North by Northwest. They all fall in the first three or four months of this year. Um, I've lost the knack of compartmentalising my brain and just focusing on one thing at a time only, which is something I always just do automatically. I don't think there's, there's no sort of trick or conscious act in there. That's been very difficult. And then, as you say, the unpredictability factor, um, one of those shows has already been postponed again. It's very, very difficult to find good people. The industry has lost an awful lot of particular technicians. Um, and, of course, they've all largely run off into the welcoming arms of film and television where they're getting paid three times the amount of money that they were ever paid in theatre and are now understandably saying, well, why should I come back? Yeah. They get yeah. paid three times as much and they feed me three times a day. It's kind of... That's a problem. And then look, even just at a, at a very sort of day-to-day nuisance, if you like, local level, I lost two hours of time um, on the show I'm working on at the moment three days ago because the, the flyman um, had a positive rat test that morning, so I was immediately sent home again, as he should be. Um, but there was no one else in the building who got up that flight system. So we all sat around for two hours while somebody very kindly dropped everything and rushed in from home to take their place. Um, so it's kind of right across the board. It's, uh, and then there's, you know, there are the sort of bigger picture unpredictabilities like will people buy tickets? How comfortable will audiences feel about sitting in a theatre? I've kind of got used to that because I just go there every day, do my test in the morning and wear a mask, you know, from nine o'clock in the morning until midnight when I leave. So I've got quite, I've become quite inured to that. Um, but of course, it's not the same thing as sitting in a full house. And for somebody who has been bunkered down at home to suddenly venture into that environment, I can imagine that that would make a lot of people very nervous. And reportedly, there are lots of people not showing up to performances right across the board. Um, and equally, there are lots of people wanting to reschedule for, you know, two months down the track if the show is on for that long. That suggests to me that there is a bit of nervousness out there in the community. And we can only hope that nervousness is not so great that it um, affects the viability of shows. Yes, it's a matter of riding these waves out, isn't it, until till the end. But uh, and I had to be a Debbie Downer, but I think it's it's we're going to have similar conversations this time next year. Look, I 
until we stop pinching the third world's vaccines out from under their noses. <laughs> yeah. Um, my understanding of what the epidemiologists of the world are telling us, um, I think it is just this. It's exactly as you say. It will be one wave after another until the world's wealthier countries realise that there's no point only fixing your own problem. Well, let's uh, let's talk about something a little bit more exciting and, and happier, uh, the role of the lighting designer. You are, of course, a designer of sets as well, but it's chiefly uh, lighting designer where you've carved your career. Am I, am I correct there? Yes. I, I kind of, a very, very long time ago, I briefly flirted with wanting to be a director. That flirtation didn't last very long. And then... I somewhat more substantially flirted with being a set designer. And for various reasons, I decided not to do that forever, always. Um, and of course, all the time I was working as a lighting designer. So I just became more and more subsumed by that. I am nowadays in the very fortunate position that um, on occasions, if I wish to, I can put my hand up for designing the set as well. But I tend to only do that if there is, under very specific circumstances and for very special reasons, i.e. I have a, you know, a kind of burning conviction about how the set design for this particular show should look. And as I say, it's a great luxury because it means that I'm never left in that position where you have to design a set for something that doesn't necessarily speak to you or inspire you in any particular way. So best of both worlds. Can, can designers like performers be typecast that, that you are only known for one particular production element? You are a lighting designer, you are a set designer and, and never the twain shall be considered? Our industry pigeonholes people incredibly cruelly, uh, and it's it's tacit. There's no there's no outspoken master plan going on out there, but people get typecast very very quickly, and it's a very difficult thing to shrug off. Um, but sort of one example of springs to mind that's very common is um, kids who have trained, <clears throat> trained as technicians because you can't train as a lighting designer in this country, regrettably, despite my efforts to the country. Um, and then they get out of NIDA or VCA or wherever and they say to me, well, you know, I definitely want to be a lighting designer. That's all I want to do. Can I do some compliments with you? Um, and you know, give me assistant, assisting positions, etc. And I say, yes, sure, but what are you going to do in the meantime to pay the bill? And they say, oh, I'll, I'll keep working as a technician, of course. Doesn't work. You'll immediately be pigeonholed as the person up the ladder or the person behind the lighting desk. And it's it's sort of a hiding to nothing. So I have been known to say to people, don't do that go and drive a taxi, go and work in a restaurant, anything, but don't do a different job within the industry. 
And there are sort of, you know, you can you can go and work in events, for instance, to put money on your site. That's sort of okay because it's under the radar to a certain degree. But if you're under people's noses, as I say, climbing up ladders or sitting behind lighting desks, you, you are putting a massive hurdle in your way. That's one example of the way in which we pigeonhole people. It's uh, similar to a, an actor taking a role as an understudy or a swing in a big musical. Uh, you're quickly identified, yeah. you do it well, and that's all you consider as. Become that reliable person who, you know, with a modicum of rehearsal only can leap into the breach, do a good job, take the curtain open, but you won't get cast in that same role next time back. Yeah. So, uh, Nick, how do you define the role of the lighting designer? What, what is it you do? It's quite tricky to answer that. I, I will preface, preface my answer by saying this won't be a short answer. It's, <laughs> it's much more complex than people think. And it, it, it has to do with the slightly ephemeral nature of the medium of life. It has to do with the difficulty, the sort of associated difficulties in talking about it. It's very ephemerality makes it a very difficult thing to put into words and, you know, there's nothing on a piece of paper that you can point at and say, I mean that. The main reason it's difficult to define the job is that it sort of covers on so many bases. On one level, and this is only one level, and a slightly simplistic rendering of that level, if, if you accept the premise that most theatre is an act of manipulation, it's a bunch of people at one end of the room manipulating a bunch of people at the other end of the room that we call an audience. In the kind of arsenal available to theatre makers, light beyond an actor's performance, of course, light is the single most potent instrument in your sort of weaponry of manipulative tools, it's even more manipulative potentially than music because an audience perceives music, they can hear it. They know they're having something done to it. If you, if you get this bit of the job right, um, you, can, you can use incredibly slow shifts of light to... Tell an audience where to look, tell an audience how to look, tell an audience what to think of any one of the one, two, three, ten people on stage. You can shift the power relationship between those people. Uh, and then, you know, the, the last one I would list here is, for most people, the most obvious one. Just simply by shifting the atmosphere, you can affect the way an audience perceives any given moment in the show. Given that you can do that without letting the audience know it's being done to them, it becomes an incredibly potent tool. I would say that is one of the most important parts of a lighting designer's job. So a complete grasp and deep understanding of the dramaturgy of not just the work, whether it's the script, the score, the dance, whatever, but a deep understanding of the dramaturgy of this production's take on all of the above. 
is a really essential piece of knowledge or piece of understanding, let's say. I think that's one of the single most important things. Um, and the next would be that, you know, I sort of always use the parallel of the saying that a set, if you think of a set as a solid three-dimensional construct that is essentially immovable, yes, you can fly bits of it out and in and out, it, you can physically move things around on stage, but at any given point in time, it's a static framework within which the show takes place. If you think of light as a second skin, as, a, as an internal framework inside that outer one, but this framework is completely malleable, shiftable, adjustable, tunable, rebalanceable, all literally at the press of the button. That's the other really big role, which of course massively overlaps with the former. Um, but that, that's the other thing that you really need to understand deeply. And, you know, you learn, you learn tricks and techniques for doing all of the above, all of which will be different in every, every single instance. But there are, like anything else, there are basic techniques that are reasonably common for the situation and situation. I think that's a really important part of the job. Um, and kind of the, not the less important elements that, because they're so fundamental, I think they go without saying, is that you want something to look as good, in inverted commas, and as right as it always possibly can at any given point in time. You know? But I think that bit goes without saying. And, and that, frankly, is the easy bit. It's all that other stuff. Um, I mean, if you, if you take the example of a work with a lot of people on stage, like a hundred in the chorus of a big opera. A director can knock themselves out staging that. If you don't light it in a way that supports that staging, they're on a hiding to nothing. It just won't work. If, if you end up putting five times more light, which is really crassly, you end up putting five times more light on the hundred people in the chorus than your two soloists in front of them and sing to their hearts content, but no one's yeah. going to be looking at it. No. Yeah. Again, very simplistic, but just to illustrate the point. So spending time, spending a lot of, I spend a lot of time in the rehearsal room and I spend a lot of time usually talking to the director about exactly that. If we, if we tweak the staging at this moment in, X, Y, or Z fashion, then it can be made to look like that, that, and that, and that is going to get our version of this X, whatever. Um, it's going to get it through to an audience much more strongly, much more directly, much more potently. Whereas if you stage it the other way around, it's kind of putting, you know, usually it ends up being a number of hurdles or obstacles in the way of doing that. Uh, so you have to know a lot about staging techniques, um, how to 
efficiently and effectively move potentially large numbers of people around the space. But all those same things apply to a two-hander in a studio theater as well. The same major differences of scale. But the same principles apply. And if you don't understand those techniques, then you're not going to be doing a very good job of writing them and therefore supporting the staging. Um, or supporting the director's work. I was going to suggest that that uh, you're a bit like a painter or a sculptor with light, but but obviously it's much more than that. There is such a breadth of knowledge which is required about theatre crafts and, and 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 acting and and directing in order to um, illuminate all of the uh, the elements of the whole. Painterly is one of those annoying one line one word adjectives. <laughs> Frequently appearing one-line reviews of my work, um, and I will I will wear that proudly as a badge of honour. My my uh, now deceased older brother was a painter. He's a lot older than me, so my entire childhood was spent watching paintings grow across his canvases. Um, and with an age difference of eleven years, you know, I. I, I learned so much about what I now do from initially just watching and inhaling that process almost subconsciously because I saw it every single day of my childhood. And then obviously when I got older, talking about it forever. Um, and I, the way I construct images is very much like the process of painting that moment. I mean, I literally work, not just think in terms of, but I work in terms of an undercoat or an underpainting. Um, and it, it's it's a glib parallel, but I think that's a really, it's a very valid analogy to say that if you think of every single light source as a brush stroke, the colour remains the colour. The density of the brush stroke, in other words, how diluted or not, how much medium you put on the brush is the dimmer. Um, the whole, all of the theoretical underpinning of, of spatial organisation and spatial relationships identical. The only difference is one starts in a black three-dimensional void and the other starts in a usually white two-dimensional flat plane. From there on, it's um, they're, they're very analogous processes. However, that's the bit that, as I say, it kind of you should be able to say that goes without saying. It's what you that that's the that's the purely aesthetic end of it. Um, it's what your work contributes to the production that's going on inside that picture that is so much more important. So, in the case of North by Northwest, it's because of the way we've chosen to put that film on stage, it's um, within what you might call a slight, well, there's more than a nod towards film noir, let's say, even though the, the actual film hardly qualifies as such. Um, but within that, there's really wham-bam in your face lighting that is not at all doing any of the subtle things I was talking about a moment ago. It's doing all of those things in a really unsubtle fashion. 
but stylistically, it's part of the way we've put that film on stage. It's like bang, bang. You could think of them, if you want to think of them in filmic terms, you could think of them as jump cuts of a very unsubtle nature. They have to have a rhythm. That rhythm's got to work with the music. That rhythm, lights and sound together, in turn need to work with lightning speed and brilliantly staged transitions. And you might spend two days making something that in the run of the show will take 30 to 40 seconds on stage. Because it's all of those elements, and they all have ingredients of what I'm talking about when I try and describe my job or the job of the lighting designer. All the other disciplines obviously have elements of that as well. So it's a complex mesh of things that you're putting in the one big saucepan and stirring a lot. Um, but if you, you know, and they take a long time sometimes to intermesh efficiently, effectively. If you get that right, it's it's exciting. But if one of those elements is out of step or out of sync with the others, it's at the very least always going to just not feel quite right and it will not feel quite right to an audience as well, even though there's no way that the average audience member could sit there and dissect the problems of that moment for you, of course. It just won't quite work. You're talking about opera before, which and they have very rich, vast scores. North by Northwest, the film, I think one of the another major character in it is Bernard Herrmann's score. Sure do, the, do the scores of musicals and operas, and indeed perhaps North by Northwest, do they give you clues as to how you're going to design the lighting for the show? Massively. Uh, I'm, I'm working on an opera for Munich now this year, get out of the habit of saying next year, um, at the moment. And I, I've just sort of, it's, it's The Devils of Ludon by Penderecki, so it's a virtually unperformed work. There's been four or five productions of it since the premiere in 1971. Um, it hasn't got a tune in it. <laughs> uh, so therefore it's, and the score, and I'm pretty damn good at reading music, but the score is difficult to read. Um, but, you know, every few days, once a week, whatever, I'll sit down and listen to the whole thing with the score. But even when I'm working on something else, I've had it going all the time because it's a difficult, it's complex music, it's difficult to learn. It's also sensational. It's just difficult. Um, I'm doing that, long answer to your short question, I'm doing that because that, that is going to utterly drive how I like that production. Yes, within the constraints of the set that we've come up with, yes, within the constraints of various other stylistic, shall we say, givens and aesthetic givens, but that's there's still a massive amount of leeway left by the time you give yourself, willingly give yourself those parameters. Um, and ultimately it's it's the flavour and the tenor and the feel of the music that will drive all of that. And I 
you know, when I do an opera, I learn the story. I don't know how else you could do it. Yes, there are often clues, I would suggest, in the orchestrations that might indicate a light turning on or off or getting brighter or fading. And, you know, going back to what I was saying about invisible shifts of light, um, when you've got a hundred and something people in the orchestra there making lots and lots of noise, it's amazing how quickly you can shift enormous quantities of light still relatively speaking imperceptibly if you just bury it perfectly within the music you actually let the music carry that moment for you and it's hard to it's sometimes hard to believe how invisible that shift ends up being within the context of the performance because when you look at a cold you think well who are you kidding you know no one's not going to see that if you get if you get the timing right and the placement, right? it's some, um, it kind of speaks volumes about what you're saying. It, it's more than just clues. It's, it can, under certain circumstances, be complete sort of driving force. Nick, what about um, playwrights like uh, George Bernard Shaw and Samuel Beckett and Tennessee Williams, who are quite specific in their stage directions about what they would like the production to? to achieve as with the atmosphere of, of the lighting and all that sort of thing. Do you feel obliged to honour those playwrights' intentions or are we far enough away now um, in inventing new productions contemporary for a contemporary audience where we can step away and um, come up with but our any, own um, interpretation? Have you by any chance read my comments about Tennessee Williams' stage direction somewhere, Peter? <laughs> um, I am a great believer in working from a script that has no stage direction. What German companies tend to do, they produce their own version of a text that literally excises everything other than, you know, the, the most basic information in terms of where and when are we in this scene as opposed to the previous one. The given circumstances. But anything that has to do with um, an actor's response, like any time that says excitedly in italics, in brackets, um, you know, that goes. Because that's just <laughs> inflaming that actor. Yeah. And you can, you can, you know, you can try and ignore that as you will. It's there and it will it will inevitably find its way in there somewhere and either be dealt with and got rid of or not, but it's it's there. <clears throat> the when you get to the extremes of uh, Tennessee Williams, it's like everything else about doing so-called classics now. It's not we're not in a museum. We're not recreating the works as they were staged. And I would maintain there is, a, there is a way of doing the works as they were conceived, but you have to take my, in this case, word for it, that I'm trying to be faithful to that intention, but I'm interpreting it, not just for a theatre, but for a world that's 50, 60, 70 years on. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you go back as far as Shaw, to take that example, um, 
that that has nothing to do with how we make things in our days. It certainly has nothing to do with the kind of tool that I'm interested in. But I'm a huge fan of some, quite a few, of these plays. So I'd hate to not see them staged. If the only way you can conceive of staging them is to literally follow the dating or the curly writing in the script, then I think you're actively killing that answer. It's a very different world now. We need yeah. to see those texts through our eyes. And I think if we start staging them in ways that are nowadays quite foreign and look very creepy and old-fashioned, we're not doing that way any further. I have less of a problem with Beckett because he so appeals to my aesthetic that I find it much easier to do what Sam says. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I was the set I designed for Endgame at City Theatre a few years ago. I was criticised for having water trip, tripping down the walls um, because that's not in the in the Bible, as it were. Right. I think at that point, it's just getting very, very silly. And more to the point, it's very counterproductive. The, uh, the the text is the blueprint, and I guess you have to define what your blueprint is for any production before you before you begin. Yeah, and I, I'm not I'm not a vandal of texts by any means. I don't believe in automatically rewriting entire plays. I think quite often that has um, there are very good reasons for doing that, and there are very good examples of it being done very successfully. But I, I'm not advocating that. What, what I am saying, though, is that there is no point in staging a piece of theatre in 2022 in a way that you think or imagine that it might have been staged in 1950 or 1920 when it was written. And West is another example. Um, you won't see it here because we don't do enough of it, but in January, where his work is still performed a lot, I imagine he turns in his grave several times a week if you imagine you know, the, the full gamut of productions of his works around the 50-something major theatres in Germany uh, in any given week. But I wonder if he does turn in his graves because Blaise was also incredibly pragmatic and I yes. don't think he would like the idea of his works being staged in glass boxes in the museum sense that a lot of them would end up looking if you were to say to buy the state versions. Applauding that reinvention. Yeah. Now, I've read that you won't uh, sign on to a show unless you're there from the ground floor. Why is it important to you to to be there um, from that point? I, I think theatre and film are unique art forms in that, in their normal structure, they are the product of numerous imaginations. There are, of course, auteur, so-called auteur theatre makers who basically invent the entire thing and then they have lots and lots of assistants who carry that out for them. Fine and good, but obviously I'm not interested in doing that myself. There's nothing wrong with it, though. it's just not for me. But as soon as you move away from that model in any kind of more normal constellation of people, you're talking about at least three and anything up to six brains and individuals and aesthetics and 
pastes with all their bugbears, etc. Uh, hard to imagine a painting being produced like that or a sculpture. I'm sure it's happened. And there is the, you know, the workshop of the master. But still, I'd argue that's more the auteur model. But that's, you know, rightly or wrongly, that is how we make theatre and it's how we tend to make film. I don't see the point of doing that unless the whole is greater than the sum of those parts. And I think the only way that can be is if all of those key people, the people who are responsible for how an aspect of it is going to look, sound and feel, let's say. So it's the director and the designers and uh, potentially the composer and potentially a choreographer. Un unless everybody contributes to that production, I don't see the point. No, it will never rise above the loudest voice in the room. To make that structure work, and I always refer to it as a very messy democracy, it's dependent on everyone playing with very open hearts, very honestly, and also knowing when to pull their head in and shut up because they've lost that argument. So it, it's, you know, it's dependent on a lot of sometimes difficult to control factors. But I still think messy and all, it's the only way that you're going to get something better out of it because you are genuinely harvesting the knowledge and the, and the imagination of all of those people. And if I'm not going to be one of those people, I'm not interested in doing it. North by Northwest, your director is Simon Phillips. Now, you've had, uh, from my calculations, been about a 30-year relationship with Simon lighting his productions? Uh, I think it's 30 plus. 30 plus, wow. So... Yeah. That's a that's a great number of, of shows in that time. How do you keep it fresh? Look, you get this great... I was talking to Simon last night, very late on the phone, about another show, and not for the first time. It, the degree of our shorthand um, is sort of extraordinary. Uh, Simon's wife accuses us of finishing each other's sentences sometimes. <laughs> um, and, I mean, we are, he's also one of my closest friends over all these years. And he's the director I've, I've worked with far more than any other. I, I, God knows how many productions Simon and I have done together, but uh, it's certainly more than I have with any other director. In a way, you'd expect that shorthand would be a trap for exactly your question, how do you keep it fresh? I suspect that, in a way, when the shorthand gets that efficient, it kind of almost transgresses the danger point of getting stale and getting repetitive because we don't seem to really talk about, we don't seem to have a lot of the normal conversations, shall we say, that you know, one might have with other directors in similar situations. There's so much taken for granted, taken on trust, put on how you will, that um, it... it it frees you from the sense of that person who knows my work very well is depending on me or expecting me to do X, Y, and Z at this particular moment in the show because he knows that's my tendency. You don't even, you sort of leapfrog that phase of the whole exchange. And instead you've just got somebody saying it will make this work. So it kind of frees you to the point where, and of course you still have to be careful, you're not getting, you're not collectively repeating yourselves, 
but um, it, it frees you from at least part of that danger point. And the other factor in that would be that, you know, those 30-something years have encompassed everything from um, musicals like Priscilla and Love Never Dies through very light, silly comic plays like Cleanaria springs to mind, um, all the way through to Mar Sard, you know, at the opposite end of the spectrum, which was, in yeah. fact, the first show we ever did together. Um, and there's been, you know, a couple of pretty damn serious Shakespeare's and Jacobean plays like just pretty things of horror in their way. So that gamut of work, the pure sort of breadth of the, the scope, I think also helps to ensure against repetitiousness and staleness. Uh, and, you know, we're both quite often say, what if we get something really lucky with this moment? Kind of you know, I don't yeah. think we throw those away again, but sometimes they stick. That speaks to me of a collective, we've never had this conversation, but it speaks to me of a collective awareness at least of that danger. North by with Northwest uh, features many, many locations. If we think of the film, uh, we're in bars, we're in hotels, there's a car chase, there's beautiful homes, there's Mount Rushmore, there's a train. What are your considerations or what does Simon... Uh, what what advice does he give you or request that he give you about creating on that canvas, you know, the vastness of Mount Rushmore to the intimacy of a, a train berth? In this particular instance, and I've got to be careful about spoilers here, I presume. True. Um, in this particular instance, that's not as valid a question as it would appear to be and, and, and indeed would be in the context of other productions. The, the sort of the, the basic approach to putting this film on stage has solved, I think incredibly cleverly, has solved the whole conundrum of putting a film on stage without ever taking it out of the context of a piece of theatre at the same time. It's a fabulous habitat to need a balancing act. And in fact, without giving it away, that question is addressed in the basic premise of how we, we do the production. I shall recall that when I'm sitting in the audience. Uh, I take watching. it you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet, no. I've been waiting for it to come to Sydney. So um, looking forward to it very, very much. It's uh, it's one of those, what's certainly my top ten films, I think, so uh, I can't wait to see the adaptation. Well, when we did it in Bath, um, just before the reviews came out, somebody discovered that it is Michael Billington's favourite film of his life. Brilliant. Which made me dread looking <laughs> at The Guardian. And um, it made his fabulously good reviews, which are even more special as a result of that. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Nick, Nick are you uh, superstitious in the theatre? No. Do you have an opening night ritual, something that you, you like to go through just to... Uh... Uh, the only thing that would fall into that category is that I do not open opening night cards until after the show. Okay, that's that sounds uh, a nice ritual to me. Yes, there's one there. Good, we found one. But that's it. That's it. I say Macbeth, I, you know, do all those things. Whistle in the dressing room. 
whistle, walk on the ladders, you know. Do you, I, I take it you read reviews then if you uh, sort out Mr Billington's do, reaction? Yeah. Uh, many of us don't, but I do. Um, as much as I, uh, much as I am deeply disappointed by the reviewing culture, particularly in this country, I, you know, there's no point not engaging with it. So I think you need to know what, what they're saying. And finally, after your extensive career, do you still get nervous? Um, very rarely. Very rarely. Uh, I can't pretend that on the four opening nights of the ring cycle in 2004, I wasn't sitting very much on the edge of my seat. That would be lying to suggest that. Um, oh, look, there are still moments, yeah, but by and large, no. I guess if you uh, you have a good team that you're working with and um, tech's gone well, then um, it's in the bag. But also it's there's something about sitting in the middle of an audience where you can't get out without making a you know, fairly major <laughs> spectacle of yourself to put you in a kind of um, a fatalistic frame of mind. Like whatever happens is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it anymore. And you know, you've, you've just gone from being in a position of pretty massive control. Like if I switch on the right channel on my on my headsets, I can stop just about anything on that stage happening if something's going wrong. Or I can do something about it. I can at least mitigate the size of the disaster that is unfolding. The instant you take away that line of communication, and as I say, get locked in by lots of other bodies, you know, well, what can I do? It's just fate. Well, North by Northwest is playing at the Lyric Theatre in Sydney throughout March. Uh, Chookers for another triumphant uh, season of the show. And uh, thanks for the chat today, Nick. Thank you very much, Peter. North by Northwest, adapted by Carolyn Burns, plays the Lyric Theatre in Sydney from March 9th to April 3rd. It features a stellar cast, including David Campbell, Genevieve Lemon, Bert Labont, Amber McMahon and Tony Llewellyn-Jones and lighting design by my guest in this episode, Nick Schlieper. Sounds like event theatre not to be missed. Join me in the next episode when my guest will be director Simon Phillips. Simon happens to be the director guiding North by Northwest, but also he is at the helm of Opera Australia's thrilling new production of The Phantom of the Opera, to be staged on Sydney's iconic harbour. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out previous episodes of the podcast by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.